Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit BiteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Kenny Werner, and we will be talking about his new book, Becoming the Instrument, Lessons on Self-Mastery from Music to Life. In Becoming the Instrument, Kenny shares how anyone can experience mastery, drawn from his experience as a musical master. It is the guide for seeing the highest in oneself and others. This new book is for anyone who wants to understand the fine art of mastery and how it applies to their own life. He brilliantly, yet uh, simply, expresses how to lift one's perception from the mundane to a higher plane, and he does it with a sense of humor. Kenny Werner has been a world-class pianist, composer, and teacher for more than 40 years. In 1996, he wrote his landmark book, Effortless Mastery, Liberating the Master Musician Within. In 2010, Kenny received the Guggenheim Fellowship Award for his seminal work, No Beginning, No End, a musical journey exploring the tragedy in loss, death and, re- death and transition, and the path from one's lifetime to the next. For more information, you can visit Kenny's website, which is KennyWerner.com, and that's K-E-N-N-Y-W-E-R-N-E-R.com. Good. I'd like to welcome Kenny to the show. Good day, Kenny. Hi, Robert. Nice to meet you. Uh, Thank you. Likewise. Uh, I enjoy your book. I enjoy the humor (laughs) that you your spread throughout the book. Um, it, uh, it, it really um, it makes it easier to kind of um, listen to the words of wisdom that you pose. Um, so I'd like to start with, you know, the title. The title of your book, Becoming the Instrument. Why is it that you chose that title? Well, you know, as uh, what Effortless Mastery was about, the first one was getting the mind out of the way so you could experience uh, whatever it was you were doing without negative thoughts about yourself, you know, whether it's dancing or singing or uh, work or computer programming or whatever. And as that grew, I realized that when a person enters themselves uh, and then trains the body, if it's a bodily kind of thing, then it just takes you even further to think of yourself, well, I'm not the player, I'm the instrument. And it also invites all sorts of uh, spiritual contemplations and uh, psychological contemplations and even gets into neurological pathways. What, what's the difference if I'm the instrument rather than the player? Well, if I'm the instrument, then I must believe that something is playing using me as the instrument to play the instrument. So uh, when I started to think of it as that, uh, it started, it was the basis of a, another premise 
the premise for a whole other book, which just takes it very much further, and that's how we got here. Yeah, yeah, it does. Now, um, we, we talked about effortless mastery, and in this particular book, um, you basically the subtitle of self-mastery. So, um, and, and when I read about your, just how you described mastery, um, it, it kind of goes beyond what some people think. And let me, let me go ahead and read that quote, and then if you wouldn't mind kind of tell us you know, the the, sure. the reasoning so keep behind it. And the, the quote is, mastery is not perfection or even virtuosity. It is giving oneself well, forgiving one's mistakes, and not allowing earthly evidence to diminish one's view of one's self as a drop in the ocean of perfection. Um, so tell us about it. I, I think a lot of people out there, when they think mastery, they, they kind of immediately go to perfection, the idea of perfection right. and result. Well, if you have the attitude of mastery that if you're not perfect, uh, your self-acceptance and forgiveness is so immediate that you don't suffer from not being perfect, perfect you're more likely to be able to keep aiming towards perfection on a technical level. Perfection on a technical level, either you play the whole piece brilliantly or without making a mistake, or you uh, do heart surgery without making a mistake, of course, that's a kind of mastery. But the broader term of mastery is forgiving yourself if you do make a mistake, which is the fastest way to get back on the path of perfection, which is not to let the fall be so low if you're not perfect. So, yeah, there's the obvious thing of mastery, what everybody thinks of, but I think of mastery is keeping, staying in this moment, not being drawn into self-doubt, which then ends more things than it begins. Uh, I think of mastery as forgiveness being instantaneous uh, for oneself's shortcomings is a form of mastery. A person can play one note with the state of mind of mastery and really connect and own that note. And so the notion that you have to play great in order to have this uh, – or, you know, play virtuosic, virtuosic in order to have this experience is dispelled by the fact that if you're in a state of mastery, one note, you can master one note and feel uh, complete union and ownership of that note. But if your mind is saying, oh, I'm not really worthy, that's only one note, then you miss the miracle of that one note. So there's mastery in terms of to master something, and then there's mastery in terms of to master life, which is to keep self-acceptance, if possible, self-love, and self-generosity, the fires of those things burning, no matter what the other circumstances say. Yeah, and, and that um, self-love can be a challenge for a lot of folks, you know, and, and um, you know, and you know, forgiving, uh, the self-forgiving of, of mistakes, you know, those those two areas can, uh, sometimes society tends to, to condition us, our, our things to, you know, to avoid, avoid the failures, you know, you know, in mistakes and, um, you know, self-love is right. selfish. <laughs> so, but, you know, to avoid the mistakes is to avoid the opportunities as well. Uh, there's an opportunity you won't take because you're afraid you might make a mistake. So the state of mastery allows people, ironically, let's say you are making mistakes 
and you're very self-critical, you probably will not be able to get back on your horse. If you make mistakes and it doesn't mess with your sense of self, the value of oneself should not be measured by how well you commit an act, whether it's playing a piano or uh, throwing a baseball. The sense of oneself should be non-negotiable. And if it is, ironically, you do everything with more perfect state of mind. You get closer to perfect results, and you go much further. Because the thing that stops us is the fear of making a mistake. It's not really the making a mistake. It's how I'll feel about myself if I make a mistake. So you see, behind everything is the state of mind you're in. If you made a mistake and your forgiveness was neurological, in other words, to forgive yourself was a neurological path, just like for so many people to blame yourself is a neurological path. You can do it without effort, right? If you're the one of these people that think, well, it's, my, it's me, I'm so this, I'm so that, you don't have to practice it. It comes pretty easily. Well, so does the opposite. Uh, I am worthy whether... I can do this or not. And if so, I forgive myself for not doing it well today. If that says, that means you've created a new neurological pathway where you forgive yourself just as naturally as you would criticize yourself. So the book is really about, and I learned all these things from music. That's why the subtitle is so important. Lessons in mass self-mastery. It didn't say yet lessons of musical mastery. From music to life. I learned this from playing music. If I, for example, played badly and I beat myself up, it would take me longer to get back on track and play well. If I played badly and had it affect me the minimum, then my boat would rise back up to sea level uh, instantly, and that was just for whatever reason. Now, if there are institutional reasons, you know, uh, uh, foundational reasons why you're not playing well, then without that ego that, that beats yourself up, you could get at those things and start working on them instead of thinking, oh, I'll, I don't have good rhythm, I'll never play well. That's the ego. To think, I don't have good rhythm, let me figure out the first rhythmic exercise and get on that track is to is no ego, is a, a, a pattern of self-love. I want to give myself rhythm. I don't want to judge myself for not having rhythm. So you see the difference. Yeah. And in the book, I'm describing what things could I practice so that the urge to forgive myself and stay on track or to bless the darkness, you know, another way of saying it. When I'm not behaving the way my holistic self has set out for me and I'm just being a, a, a jerk, right? And then you get over <laughs> being a jerk and, okay, are you going to beat yourself up for two weeks for being a jerk or are you going to forgive yourself instantly and go back to the things you believe? So the ability to do that can be developed. That some people think they have it or they don't. But actually, I've seen people do the practices that were outlined in the book and gone from self-judgment to self-love. And then from there, all your actions are simpler because you're not carrying the baggage of your negative assumptions. Yeah, exactly. It is. um, It's wonderful. For moving forward, you know, and for not getting stuck, or you know, for, or spiraling, you know, downward is, is the case. It's a way to um, to get back on track. Now, Absolutely. in your book, you put you, you give a lot of attention to the space. So, could you tell the listeners for you what is the space? 
you know, it's a generic term, non-denominational, that I came up with myself to explain in music, what do I feel? I feel more of an absence of things than things. The things I used to feel were the things that got in the way of playing. Now there's an absence of things. All there is is the playing. So, for example, from the conscious mind where all the problems spring up, you might be afraid to play because you might not sound good. From the space, you have no sense of uh, context or judgment. So you would just play. From the conscious mind, you would be afraid to take, make choices because they may not work out. From the space, the ability to make choices in itself is a success. From the now, what I call the space is validated by the oldest scriptures or mystical texts of the East to the very beginnings of psychology to what they're doing now with psychology and, tr and triggers and, uh, you know, neurological pathways and the science. And it also, you know, so it agrees with spirit, it agrees with science, it agrees with psychology. Part of your brain that's not as damaged from all the uh, protections that you try to adopt, that the ego tries to adopt from all the experiences of the past. See, from the conscious mind, you're always dragging around the suitcases of uh, regret of the past. I don't want that to happen again. And fears of the future. I hope that never happens. And what you're missing completely is the power of this moment. So to be in this moment is to be in the space. To be not thinking, you know, and there's other names like the conscious mind, subconscious mind, and then the superconscious mind, which is more attached to the vibration of the entire universe than it is the small concerns of that particular body. So from the superconscious mind, and from, again, from the conscious mind, you're individual and you're conscious of your differences between you and other people and you're conscious of your, you're conscious of your, uh, uh, limitations or your, you know, your pluses from the space you're yeah. a drop in the ocean. So what happens that, you know, a drop, if you took a drop of water and you put it on a table, it would dry up in seconds, right? If it's a drop in the ocean, mm -hmm. it'll last forever. So uh, there's so many things, a state of grace, Hashem, the Holy Spirit, superconscious mind, universal mind. There's so many names for it. I just adopted what I thought was the simplest, the space. And I've been using that between 30 and 40 years. And now I have programmed myself. That's the important message is that if you think you're not an inspiring person, you have the possibility of programming yourself to surrender more to inspiration instead of protecting yourself by numbing all your experiences, right? So with that point of view, I am uh, from the space. I just do things from the uh, yeah. judgment from the mind, you know. So that's what the space is. It's the equivalent of any of those mystical or scientific or psychological terms uh, that you would use for something beyond the normal, contracted, one might say, the mundane thoughts of a uh, ordinary mind. So I like to say that humans, humans have the ability to turn the extraordinary into the ordinary. <laughs> because everything is extraordinary. And as they quantify it and they measure it and they seek to understand it so that they don't feel like they can be ambushed by anything, that's all well and good. They survive. But they 
don't really resonate with the extraordinary events that are happening. They they dumb them down. They numb them down. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, I, I enjoyed kind of, it gave me clarity when I was looking in your book when you talked about the properties of the conscious mind versus the, the space and, and, you know, the, um, like the difference between doubt and faith or self-judgment and self-love, you know, those, the continuum that those, um, that those make up and, and, and I also enjoyed your, uh, Strain, no, stress and strain and sweet refrain, your little musical, um, right. kind of there. Um, but, uh, you know, also I think probably the one that, that stuck out the most for me was loses the groove versus is the groove. I mean, those are like totally, I mean, the perspective of those two different, um, states of, of, of being, um, to me, it's it, it just, uh, it, it just stands out, you know, because so many times we were, we're just, you know, losing the groove or not in the groove, or, you know, that kind of thing versus right. the idea of, of being through. Well, there's a lesson from music to life because the greatest bands, the musicians that band, they're not really focusing on what they're doing. They're focusing on the total group or somebody in the group that's absolutely delighting them. And at the exact moment, they're not paying attention to what they're doing. They're in the groove. And if they start to pay attention to it, and if they want to control the groove, that's the end of the groove. This is a perfect example of any successful musician, I mean inwardly successful. If they want a groove, they groove. I don't know if they're famous or not, but they know if they choose the groove, they stop thinking, and they automatically groove. So any successful musician will tell you that the groove is the absence of thought and that the best band sounds it's the absence of thinking about yourself. Anyone now, so you could take that into life and easily adapt it to why you're not comfortable at a board meeting because you're not focusing on what they're talking about. You're focusing on what you want to say. And when it comes out, it comes out overemphasized or not authentic because the same person that wants everyone to know how cool they are is the same person that cares so much about what they think. See, all that kind of negotiations happens in the conscious mind uh, in one room. And what I, the biggest point I'm trying to make, Robert, is that anybody can change from one kind of person to another. But they need not a major epiphany. They need a series of incremental practices that allow them to sample and become familiar with that mindset in a safe environment. You don't walk into a boardroom and go into the space and say anything you want. Those are real consequences. But what if you were practicing really being yourself at home, no matter what the consequences, because there are no consequences, right? Now, that opens a corridor yeah. in the mind, neurologically, where you feel a freedom that you don't feel everywhere else because you actually have good reasons why you can't feel I can't just do what I want. I'll get fired. I can't just do what I want. My boss will think I'm an idiot. Or I can't just do what I want. I won't be able to play the song, you know? That's right, mm -hmm. but you want to experience the irresponsibility and freedom and the self-love during that in a situation where there are no consequences. And these are the exercises that are in the book, are in both books, actually, to move from a person that's way too careful to a person that's comfortable with freedom and 
what happens is you're not going to go to a meeting and behave irresponsibly, but you're going to notice that while you're being responsible, you've opened some other neurological possibilities. You feel more free within that restriction than you ever have because at home you have exercises just for becoming comfortable with that freedom in your mind, believing that that freedom is who you really are, and that way the restraints you put on it is just so that, it, you know, when a musician is free, they still have to know the form of the tune. There's no mm-hmm. lesson. In fact, you have to master the form so that you don't have to think about it. So I also talk about really becoming a master of the techniques of whatever it is you're doing. Because then when you let go, the body performs it on a higher level than you could with your desire. So it's like, it's, you know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing. You practice irresponsibility and freedom at home. Your mind gets used to it. And you notice that when you go to a place where you have responsibility and you're not free, you do feel more free and you do feel that tickle that you might go anywhere with this because you've been acclimating your mind to a level of freedom that you actually already have. But living life and trying to negotiate this physical planet has severely cut it down. So, I mean, the most important, sorry for the long way of saying this, but the, the most important thing I'd like everybody to get is that if I'm a person that's devoid of surprises, that cannot turn myself on, where is the light switch? I can practice turning on the light switch and not get myself in trouble and then learn how to turn the light switch on when you are actually in the spotlight, when you have to perform. Freedom can be practiced on its own. So that's really a big message. If you're practicing something small and, and seeming like irresponsible and you're getting comfortable with it, you know that you are more alert, improvisational, and clever when you are in the, the form, so to speak. Yeah, very much. You know, and there is uh, one uh, technique that you offer in the book. It's a 20-second technique um, as right. far as able to be you know, in that moment or, you know, in the space versus um, in your head. And, and I have to say, since I had read that one, I've had many <laughs> a 20-second moment. Um, but... Um, what I like about that is, first of all, it's you know, very quick, very easy to remember. And, you know, again, say the book, when it's all over and done with, you know, you can go back to, you know, whatever it was that was distracting. But the idea of going through the practice and even for that short period of time, and, and like I have done, you know, maybe multiple times a day, um, you, I, I guess you are basically giving like you were talking about giving your yourself prep or open for more frequent connection. Yeah, you know, you read that really well. I mean, you picked up on it really well. The thing about the 20-second moment, just watching it breathe, I, I only, even since I wrote the book, I don't say watch myself breathe anymore. There's a gizmo in me, and it breathes. Whether I want to or not, it breathes. I could be looking at it, but if I'm not looking at it, it's still going to breathe. So you take 20 seconds, and you just focus on the breather, right? And because it's only 20 seconds, you can give it totally your attention because you know in 20 seconds you can have your problems back. 
Then the other innovation about that is just stopping instead of trying to see how long it can go. And the final uh, innovation to that is you willingly go back to your problems. That's the only way you can find out that your problems may not be as deep as before you did the 20 seconds. And it starts to prove to your brain, again, incrementally, setting up a new neurological pathway where I don't have to go down the, the rabbit hole of my cares and concerns. I could take a break and simply watch it breathe. And when I do that, it either takes the power out of what I was worried about, or sometimes it disappears, or sometimes it does nothing at all. But now you have this portable way of resetting back to the truth. The truth is, you're not in any danger at this moment. All the danger you're considering has to do with the future. So mm-hmm. when you're in the future, not only are you uncomfortable because the future doesn't give you any answers, but you're also ruining this moment. And when you see it in those terms, people can see years or decades that they wasted worrying about another moment. I would say as a people, if we could just get to the point of this little tool, this little seed, grows into being able to say, stop, I don't want to waste this moment. I'm going to enter this moment and completely be myself. I believe that 20-second exercise. And I've seen it from the journals of my students. As they do it, they walk into situations, and they master those situations, meaning whether they had a good audition or a bad audition. Let's put it this way. Again, a lesson for music. If you are not uh, pulled that much by whether you do a good audition or a bad audition, you're probably going to do a good audition because there's no threat that comes from doing a bad audition. And it's the threat of failure which makes success much uh, harder to achieve. So if by going into this space you eliminate the threat of failure, then actually all that's left is success. But the tangible results change too. A person that goes into an interview not afraid to fail of course, is much more compelling than a person that's trying to avoid having a bad interview. I mean, right? We all know that. I learned that lesson through something I really know, music. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're about halfway through the show, Candy, so I want to take just a quick break. And uh, when we come back from the break, um, one of the – and this kind of – Goes in from what you were just talking about. Um, one of the things there was a, a quote you book that uh, carelessness has to be practiced, <laughs> and it kind of falls in line with some of the things that you're talking about. And in that you, um, you know, sometimes open your master classes for musicians with, with a story um, about carelessness. So I'd like to talk about that when we come back from break. Okay? Sure. You got it. Great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Hello again, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again today, my special guest is Kenny Werner, and we're talking about his new book, Becoming the Instrument, Lessons on Self-Mastery from Music to Life. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is kennywerner.com, and that's K-E-N-N-Y-W-E-R-N-E-R.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Kenny. Yes. Great. Okay, so, yeah, the the idea that carelessness has to be practiced. <laughs> so um, I, I found that uh, an eye-opening idea. Um, so can you, would you share with the listeners, you know, how you talk about carelessness when it comes to your, like when you speak with your master class musicians? Sure. Um, let me give a little context for it. So let's say you're a musician and you're careful and there's a part of the piece, you're a classical musician, part of the piece is coming up and you want to be careful not to make a mistake. What usually happens when someone is being careful in advance of that moment? At best, they play it without any inspiration, carefully. At worst, they make the mistake that they were trying to be careful not to make, right? So in either mm-hmm. case, being careful does not lead to a good result. Yet, one can't just affect carelessness, but carelessness seems to be the antidote for carefulness. So how do you practice carelessness without consequences? Because, again, it's not about whether you're going to go out and play the piece or do your actions carelessly. It's about acclimating the brain to the freedom of carelessness. Meaning, uh, I go to do something, but I'm going to let my body do it. I'm not going to restrict my body to try to do it correctly. There is great uh, neurological programming in that. And again, it, none of these things are meant to be taken out into the real world and done. They're meant to be done completely in your own environment for the effect they will have on the rest of your life. When Let's say you're playing a concert, yes. You should take spots that are difficult. And among the different things you're trying, what would happen if you carelessly played it? You know? Well, you might find some of it Mm -hmm. goes more right than it ever has. But you also might find out where the mistakes are. See, when you're careful, let's say you're being careful. I'll give you another context. Let's say you're practicing and you're being very careful. How would you know what you know and what you don't know? You're being careful enough to try to not make a mistake. So it's a win, but it's a loss. You win the battle, but you lose the war because the only reason you had to be careful is that you had not really mastered that part of the piece yet. So carelessness, in that case, will expose, obviously, those things that you have to be careful to do. I mean, doing things carefully 
is mediocrity. You can't play baseball carefully. You can't throw a football carefully. You have to let it fly, right? So what I like mm-hmm. about the word careless is because it flies right in the face of everything we try not to be. Nobody wants to be careless. And they're usually careless because they just don't have the energy to be careful. But what if you want to use carelessness as a strategy to find the freedom of movement or the freedom to make mistakes without letting the whole piece fall down or to use the carelessness to find out where you really are less masterful of a piece or or, or an action, let's say a golf club or whatever. You know, uh, I would if I was counseling a golfer and I don't I don't play golf at all. But I would count them to swing and not pay attention to their swing at all. And have practice not having a reaction when they miss the ball completely or when the ball doesn't go where they want to go. If someone does that for 10 minutes, when they go out on the green and they do care, they're going to notice that for some, and this is neurological stuff that I just found. I don't say I knew about it. When I tried it, it worked. If someone were to swing at a ball carelessly for five minutes before they go out there, then when they're being careful, they'll notice that they're a lot more precise. So I've given you a few different yeah. uh, scenarios where, but carelessness is also another way to practice self-forgiveness. Be careless yeah. and don't yeah. let it lead to the usual self-recrimination, which is what it makes it so painful to be careless. A lot of it seems to um, go back to the, the idea of, of caring, basically kind of being attached to a particular outcome, you know, um, right. and, and, the, and then the idea of carelessness is the doing an activity regardless of the outcome, but, you know, doing it as masterfully as possible while you're doing it. When you go out to do it, you just do whatever you do. You don't think of this stuff because that would only confuse it further. You think about yeah. whatever you used to think about. But if you practice these things at home, you just notice that they've all advanced in terms of your uh, mastery of it. These are things I discovered through music and I'm sharing in people's lives. There is a creative kind of falling that is good to practice so that you get over the fear of falling, which certainly makes standing on your feet feel sturdier. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that care- carelessness has kind of taken a new meaning after, after, for me after reading your book. Um, yeah, now, yeah. And I use the word very consciously because I know it flies in the yeah. face of people that are trying to control their lives. I know, especially now, you know, in today's environment when, you know, so much of our lives, so many things affect our lives that are beyond our control, you know, that it becomes um, even, we pay more attention to trying controlling those things that we can. Exactly. And ruining this moment and where you are, mm-hmm. just trying to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, one of the areas in your book, you have uh, 16 variations on getting out of the way. Um, can you talk to this, talk to us about that? Um, I, I had my own getting out of the way. 
Okay. Well, so if you, well, if if you uh, say one, I can come. Yeah. As you say one, sure. I can comment on it. Yeah, and and let me just say that one of the reasons it just stuck out for me was that uh, when I started my show about 12 years ago, I had that uh, internal um, back and banter back and forth about you know whether I started or not, whether whether it would be successful, you months and all that kind of stuff. So I just had yeah. that um, that mental get out of your way, you know, and just do it, you know, whatever. It's, you know, all, it it's, all, well, it's all well and good to say get out of your way because everybody says that now. The question is how many people actually know how to get out of their way. What, I, what I'm positing yeah. in this book is that you can go from just saying get out of your way to be one that gets out of their way. But the difference between the ideal and the actual implementation is a practice of some sort. You cannot expand your mind without practice any more than you could learn to play the piano without practice. You might give the greatest lecture on how to play the piano, but if there's no incremental practice, you'll never manifest the actual playing of the piano. Well, you can have the coolest, uh, uh, and many people do, they have really cool philosophies that sound great, but uh, without understanding about the that there's a practice, you'll find that you disappoint your own self from those kind of uh, expectations. You expect to be that kind of philosophical being, but when the uh, thing is on the line, you actually can't find it. And the difference is not because those philosophies are unrealistic. The difference is because the most you have to cross over is practice. If you want to be spontaneous, doesn't it make sense that other than just saying the desire to be spontaneous, that you were to practice spontaneity? How would you truly practice spontaneity? You have to let go of success. Because the thing that stops your spontaneity is the thought that it might not work out. But you see, it's really yeah. conditioning the mind to freedom and then imposing the sanctions on it that just come up normally from doing your job. But if you don't practice that yeah. freedom, that then it's all about just survival. The freedom is not to be found. And then it's just yeah. an idea, which is fine. Someone might take the idea and make more of it than you did. But if you don't practice it, if you don't have the strategy to practice it, then it doesn't matter how eloquent, sorry for all the noise, we're in my office <laughs> and the windows are anything, but they're not soundproof, you know. But if you don't practice <laughs> the ideas, yeah. you're never going to uh, uh, implement them. You're just going to continue to tell them to people. Yeah, yeah. Now, one one of the for the musicians, one of the uh, variations that you indicated was get out of the way and find out that there are no wrong notes, just wrong undertaking. Understandings. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Wrong understandings. Yeah. Wrong understandings. All right. Uh, let me let me expound on that. There are no wrong notes. Okay. We made up music, so therefore we made up the notion of right and wrong notes. That's closer to the truth than all the delusions we set up about how important art is. The truth is, any note played with self-love is as valid as any other note. Now, if you have that understanding, you probably won't play any wrong notes. <laughs> that's that's the it's kind of a paradox of it, you know. Yeah. You know, when you feel like there's no wrong notes as a state of mind, mm -hmm. you're likely not to make any mistakes. 
or less likely to make mistakes. But if you do make them, you don't even get thrown off balance because it doesn't affect the yeah. self-love and self-acceptance. So, let me put it yeah. this way. If you like yourself less because you made a mistake, that is a wrong understanding. Because you should not judge your life by right and wrong notes. Your life should not, should, your appreciation for life, you want to practice it being non-negotiable, not held hostage to how well you do a given skill. That is kind of wasting a lot of goodwill just for the miracle of life itself. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, now, in your book, you offer four meditations. Um, and uh, so tell us about your experience with meditation and, you know, why you included the, the ones that you did in the book. Well, if you notice, I'm often not actually talking about meditation. I'm talking about something that I don't call meditation. Because when I think of meditation, the word has baggage to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, I'm in a certain state of mind I'm supposed to get to, and if I don't get to this state of mind, I'm not really successful, and setting up this whole phony um, standard that's designed for you to fail to attain that standard, you know? So, mm-hmm. and yet, as a state of mind, when you actually believe that, you tend to make good actions because you're not afraid of making bad actions. Yeah. Now, you do offer from your website, um, you people can put in their email address and you, they can get the free downloads of, of your voice and music and the four meditations. And I enjoy this. It's very calming, <laughs> you know, those, those meditations. And, um, well, I do call them meditations. Because yeah. they go on for a while. But also, I played some nice stuff behind them, which is a little different. Usually, the music behind meditations is pretty much New Age wallpaper. But <laughs> I feel like I was really responding to what the meditations was saying. And yes, those are more tools. If you find yourself in a space, kind of empty, and totally content within this moment, and you found that in the middle of our meditation, you have achieved what uh, the goal of the book is. You've achieved that goal. Even if it's for moments, you're not a, a bunch of problems and events from the past, and you're not a bunch of challenges from the future. You just are. This is the oldest philosophical and spiritual concept since human history. One of the oldest mantras is Soham or Hamsa, which means I am that or that I am. The people that are so trained on that that everything else can just flow are masters. And they may only play a little, you know, if they're not masters by what technical skills they have, they are masters because they are so focused on the essence that they are rather detached from all the uh, physical, you know, seeming physical challenges, which makes life go much, much on a higher level. Yeah, that yeah very much. Now, it does. It does make sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, one, there was one um, part of the book, too, I read that uh, indicated that one day while chanting an extremely long chant, uh, 
182 verses that you began to feel integration. So um, is the integration kind of what you're talking about when you get to that point of um, that, uh, uh, statement B that uh, that it's not really what you're saying, or it's not the whole chant itself, it's just uh, um, just the state of being? State of being, absolutely. See, the point in the chant, I might have been bored or my mind was wandering for like eight-tenths of the chant, but if I hit one of those sweet spots, that zone, what I want to understand is that that's actually reality. It's all the stuff I superimpose that is the delusion. So if you can flip-flop that and those moments become more and more who you are, which happens through practice, then your life is heading towards mastery. And anything you attempt to do, the, uh, the litmus test won't be how well you do it. It will be how much love you give yourself while you do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I just, you know, thought that, the, you know, when I read that particular excerpt, you know, it was, to me, it just brought home the idea of um, uh, kind of transporting ourselves, you know, through mantras, the chance, through, you know, right. whatever, <laughs> transporting That's ourselves to, I guess, to, mm-hmm. That is their purpose. The purpose is to change your mind, to elevate yourself from just the physical to the spirit, to the spiritual. There's a spirit part of us, and when we're caught up in the physical, they're not, well, they are delusions in that from a different state of mind, they wouldn't even exist. But I realize that they feel really real on this planet. And yet, the more you focus on one thing, the more it becomes to the exclusion of other things. So the more you focus on your gratitude for being alive, the less you are held hostage to when you're not performing well or you are performing well. You know, the more you focus on the eternal, the less transitory bothers you. The more you focus on the spirit, the less the body defines your freedom. The more you focus on the ocean, the less you are confined by your own little, you know, Boundaries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like so mantras, mantras and chants and med- official meditations and gurus are all thousands of years old. They understood this thousands of years ago. And these are tools, vessels for you to elevate your awareness. You know, all the words are very literal. When they say awareness, it's what you're aware of. That's, that's what mm-hmm. they're saying. So through chanting or meditating, you notice your awareness has changed to something that feels more like a jet stream than a bumpy road. That jet stream is actually who we are. The bumpy road has been created by life on earth and experiences, whether it be prohibitive parents or restrictive education environment or, you know, racial, you know, being born on a plant in a country where racial things just take you to that you know, make life harder. They're all real things. By the same token, how much they affect you still within your control, depending on what you're practicing. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, so one of the areas that 
your humor came out in your book was talking about God expression, you know, himself, herself, themself, and wanting someone to come up with a, you know, just one word, you know, kind of a, you know, do that uh, multiple gender kind of thing. And I also had to laugh at the she, he, it, they uh, idea of, you know, with the first letter and each one being bold as far as the talking idea of, you know, I guess it really doesn't matter what we call or identify the the space as that that right. is, that, that it doesn't matter. Um, but although for when it comes to language and communicating, it can pose difficulties. Well, well, there was a, that got wider as you went on. But uh, the first thing you were saying was the minor point. You know, it's just that I, I am ever aware now that legitimately there's more than two genders. So you try to say if he oh you know he or she and then you go he or she or they. So folks, I mean it's not a big part of the book. I say at one point, will somebody please solve this and put it out of my <laughs> put me out of my misery. That was just a little side joke. But later on, for example, I start putting initials after God, which anybody can go with. You don't have to know that God exists to derive the full power from your connection with him her, or they, or it, you know? Um, so yeah. I started saying, God, I-H-E, and then in the bottom is a footnote, if he exists. It absolutely has no uh, relevance as to whether there is God or not. The power is not in God, not that we can see. It might be, but there's no way we can see it. The power is in our assumption slash belief slash faith that that exists. So when a person says, I really believe this, they can use that belief to strengthen their life. If they say, I have faith in this, if I have faith that someone's playing through me, again, the clearest lessons are what I derive from music. If I have faith that someone's playing through me, obviously I haven't seen them, but I have worked on my faith so much that as soon as I let go, I feel music coursing through my body. So the faith has worked. It still doesn't prove that what I had faith in actually exists. And what I'm trying to, there's another liberating thought there. You don't have to know. See, one of the dangers of the world right now is faith. Faith is a wonderful thing and a terrible thing. The problem with faith is that it teaches you, it inspires you to know something that you don't actually know, but you have faith that exists. It, you can find it, believe something exists, it's fine to have all the faith in the world that something exists, but to know that something exists is an over, is overreach. And unless you have seen God, even if you've heard his voice, you don't know if that's your vo her voice. You don't know if that's God's voice or indigestion. You have no idea. So the only thing that sustains us, and what I'm trying to glorify, is the power of humans when they have faith. It is truly amazing what they can create. But don't get hung up on the certitude of what it is you have faith in. Because you know how we see faith as a terrible thing? You have half the country that has faith in something that has been proven to be a lie. Check that out, yeah. you know. But when you translate, <laughs> faith is yet another neurological function of the brain. So once you've been taught to have faith, like say through your church, wonderful. Your church says you have a God. 
if you, I would like to design a God that is as supportive of me as possible, not a God that's always looking for things from me that I can't provide. See what I mean? So, so mm-hmm. uh, I can design my own God, the one that supports me the most because of the power of my faith. But once you have that, but when someone comes to you and says, I know who God is, I know he's Jesus Christ, and I know this, well, how do you know that? You know, there's not, because of how much faith they have. That means you have faith in things you can't prove. When you transpose that to politics, you have a dangerous situation. Yeah. That's my feeling um, on yeah. where, where we're at right now. People have, and it was a plan that goes back quite a way, people have taken the neurological pathway of faith and transposed it to something, things that can be proven. So if it can be proven that, let's say, someone won an election, okay, well then, your faith is the neurological function of saying, no, no, you know. I mean, otherwise, how can we explain this dual reality? And I'm not saying to believe it one way or the other. I'm saying go with the facts. I'd be comfortable with that. But once you have faith, faith trumps facts. And that's the terrible aspect of faith. However, when I use faith to strengthen my abilities, I don't have to know that the source of that faith even exists. I just have to practice surrendering to it. And that's the message I'm really sending here. You know, you can surrender to something without knowing it exists. So in the middle, I start describing God. Whenever I use the word God, I go I-A-G, <laughs> like B-C or A-D, if he exists. And it doesn't matter whether he right. does or not. Your faith is going to strengthen your ability to do whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We're down to the last five minutes here. Uh, so I do have one last um, question. Um, in the yeah. epilogue um, of your book, um, you discuss an auto accident that you experienced, and then the um, the idea or, or the what what transpired was the the uh, trust the breath, trust the shakti, trust the guru. That particular uh, mantra kind of played a role. During that time, so tell us tell us a little bit about you know about the accident and, and how you know does the uh, trust the breath, trust the safety, trust the guru play a role? Okay, I'll try to do it in an economical way because I realize we're short on time. <laughs> so the book would have been done in 2017, but I was going to India for three weeks to spend time in this mother ashram, and I thought, great, that'll be you know what state of mind will I be in? How will I be writing when I get back from that? See, it's all in the state of mind. I came back and uh, went to play a gig in New York, and I stayed in New York too long and still being on India time. I fell asleep at the wheel, no chance of waking up. And when I woke up, my car was splattered all over the road, and I was only bleeding from the head. But a week later, I started having a trauma. And this trauma lasted for six or seven months. And it was such a bad trauma that it was hard to even... I was laying in bed watching myself breathe for like three hours because every time I watched myself breathe, I didn't feel the trauma. But then I thought, okay, you're okay. Let's go brush our teeth. Boom, a bolt of lightning would hit me again. So this was really a completely debilitating trauma that it went on for six or seven months since 2017. And what I kept working with, because pain is a great motivator, I may not have worked on my breath so much in the other 28 years that I had been studying this yoga, 
but pain had me practicing it now. Watch the breath, watch the breath go in, watch the breath go out. And by the time I, the pain went away, I actually was, breath had become a tool that I would never fail to use again. So that was a gift. So that left me, now I didn't get back to the book in 2018, started to finish it in 2019, and then when the pandemic struck in 2020, I had time I needed two weeks and the book, everything was finished, you know. But that, uh, I'm glad that I had the trauma because I think the book benefited from the extra two or three years that I went through that stuff. And then I myself was using breath with more commitment than I ever had because the pain forced me to go there. Yeah. Wow. Well, is there, what, what do you hope that people, the readers, are going to take away from uh, becoming, reading Becoming the Instrument? I hope they'll realize that divinity, whatever that means, divinity, lies within them. And it's like, it's like, the, it's as evident as the sun in the clouds. There's a sun in you, and it's as bright and as powerful as it, any other sun that's ever manifested on Earth. And by the way, it's never dark, not on any day. But we do have clouds, and clouds are thoughts. They're transitory, but they do block the sun. So I would like people to be inspired to know that with the right practice, they will be becoming brighter and brighter versions of themselves. They don't have to change. They don't have to change religions or change customs. But the more they practice seeing the light rather than empowering the clouds, the more they're going to raise their power in every way. The power to heal, the power to do well, the power to befriend people, the power to love people, the power to love themselves, or the power to be scintillating as an artist, you know, or brilliant as a scientist. That light translates and gives added uh, strength and, 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 and shine to whatever it is you're doing. And, yeah, I would like them to get inspired I mean, which many of them that, that will read it will all, already think they're doing that. So then I hope this mm -hmm. is a big kick in the butt towards becoming the instrument. <laughs> Great. Well, very good. Well, thank you, Kenny, for your time today. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you, and I, I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, uh, um, the musical perspective uh, to self-mastery was really uh, refreshing. Thank you, Robert. You really did a good read because the points you brought out showed that you really understood the stuff that you were talking about. So I appreciate you okay. uh, being so deep into it. Well, it was my pleasure. I learned a lot. You know, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's why I do the show, for, for me to learn and for our listeners to learn. So thank you. Now, I, I believe I'm following you on several social media platforms, so I look forward to seeing uh, what's up and coming. Great. Actually, we'll have a webinar coming uh, soon. But yeah, just look at the website. It'll it'll announce everything. Great. Thank you. Again, All right, everyone. Thank you today, so much. My, you're welcome. Again, to everyone, today my special guest has been Kenny Werner. His new book, Becoming the Instrument: Lessons on Self Mastery from Music to Life. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website which is KennyWerner.com, K-E-N-N-Y-W-E-R-N-E-R.com. So, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration Partners Show. And until we meet again, 
Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.